Amen. Hallelujah. I'm so glad to be up here tonight. I just want to thank first and foremost God um, and also my pastor Edgar Alvarez in his absence and my pastor Sharice as well. Um, and of course, the body of I Place Church. I thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to be what I call obedient. I believe that the Lord truly gave me a word for tonight, and so I want to uh, present it as such. Um, if we could just put up Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 13, if you have your Bibles or if you have uh, your iPhones or your phones, you can join in with me as I read the scripture. All right. And the word of God says, and the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. I'm going to read it one more time. And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. It's a very short passage tonight. So we're going to get into prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you right now in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. I thank you, Lord God. No more of me from this point, but only you. I thank you right now, Lord. We need more of you tonight. And I know for a fact, Lord, that you do nothing in vain. So, Lord God, when you yield revelation, Heavenly Father, give us understanding. Enlighten the eyes of our heart, Lord God, because you said, him who hears the word and doesn't understand, it is like a seed that falls by the wayside. So I just thank you right now, Lord God, for increased comprehension, Lord God, that we might mature in our spirit, man, Lord God, and be able to eat the meat of the word, no longer being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And we just give you all the glory and the honor and the praise in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to mention a couple names. You may or may not be familiar with these names. Uh, Calvin Taylor, uh, Daniel Hubert, Arne Cheyenne Johnson and Nicholas Cruz. These four people have a few things in common. Uh, firstly, they're all men. And secondly, these four men have all created heinous crimes against society. Uh, they've murdered people and some of them multiple people. And when asked why they did what they did, all four of them gave some version or some rendition of the expression, the devil made me do it. And so uh, how can we best describe this phenomenon, the devil made me do it, so that we're on the same page? Um, the devil made me do it can be described as a human condition. It can be described as a very, very common uh, declaration. It can also be explained as an internal disease, one that corrupts the individual from the inside out through the transfiguring of his heart. Now, I try to be very strategic in my choosing of words. I chose the words to transfigure the heart because I wanted to be very aggressive about my definition. When I attempt to explain what the enemy is after when he's attempting to make you 
do it. Um, to transfigure something means to change it, not only from the inside, but it also means to change it. It's a noticeable, distinctive difference from the outside as well. To transfigure something means uh, reconfiguring a thing. It's almost like having a strand of DNA. And you take the links of that strand and you begin to rearrange them until you have completely come up with something that is new not necessarily something that is improved. And also, uh, the DNA, the same DNA may still be there, but actually you have uh, mixed the thing around so much that you have come up with something totally different than what the original author had intended. That would be transfiguring. Uh, in other words, if you give the enemy a foothold, he's going to attempt to kick the door down. If you allow him to ride in your car, he will eventually want to take over and drive. If you come into agreement with the enemy, with a part of your life, he will eventually want to steal the other part because he will never be content with a fraction of the individual. His goal and his aim is to possess the sum total. He will never be content with that. Um, his, his, his total strategy is to totally consume his host. Amen? And so, um, as we're talking about the devil made me do it and that expression, um, why? I want to I go back and revisit something. Um, why do we talk about the transfiguring of the heart? We talk about the transfiguring of the heart because, I mean, truth be told, Transfiguring takes place in many different areas. Transfiguring takes place in the heart. It takes place in the, in the mind. It takes place in the, in the spirit. It takes place um, also in the behavior and the attitudes. Um, so we want to focus specifically on the transfiguring of the heart. Uh, let me start out by saying that heart is mentioned in the Bible, in the King James Version, that is, 830 times. It is mentioned more frequently than love, wisdom, faith, and even sin. And I believe that that is because the heart of man has a very special place in God's own heart. Um, the way he set up the heart of man is similar to a living cell. Now, most living cells have a nucleus, and within that nucleus is the DNA to create, more, to create more of that thing of which it is a part of. In other words, if it's a skin cell, it has a nucleus, and within that nucleus is the DNA to create more skin. If it is a liver cell, then within that liver cell is a nucleus, and within that nucleus is the DNA to create another liver. But the way God set up the nucleus or the heart of man is not quite like that. He set up the heart of man more like a, a blank check. And he said to man, you have a right to choose life or death. You have the right to choose light or darkness. You have the right to choose good or evil. And he called that right to choose free will. And so, therefore, the seat of free will is situated in the heart of man. And so, what I began to think about one night, I heard Pastor talking about, he began to elaborate about the Parkland shooting a little bit. 
And um, in doing so, he mentioned that Nicholas Cruz, um, his testimony was that he heard demons and the demons told him to do what he did. And I remember hearing that and I felt prompted to go and do more research. And as a footnote, that's what good teaching should always do, beloved. It should always make you wanna go dig deeper. And so I felt compelled to go do a little bit more research and I went to go consult a really good friend of mine called Google, right? And I asked Google, how many people use that expression, the devil made me do it, say in the past 30 years? And I found so, it yielded so many different people. I only mentioned four here tonight, but there were a lot of people who had that very same testimony. And I began to realize that uh, this is an expression, this is a phenomenon that is age old, it is not new. This is something that goes back to the very genesis of man, as we saw earlier. Eve said, the, the serpent beguiled me. To beguile means to mesmerize, to woo, to distract, to divert. And I was reminded of a teaching that the Lord had given me a few years ago. Um, it was about how sin enters into the heart of man. And so I began to realize at that moment that this was a pretty relevant teaching. This is something that we're dealing with. This is something that is going on. And so... Um, uh, the Lord really began to minister to me during that time. Uh, as I think about it, I remember the Lord letting me know that we as believers, in particularly in the body of Christ, we have a tendency to think that if we, if we have health, if we have wealth, if we have our significant other, our soulmate, um, if we have, uh, uh, let me see, what are some of the things that we like to have? Health, wealth, strength, relationship. If we have all those things, if we have relationship with God, that we are okay, we're safe. And God, I'll serve you all the days of my life if you will bless me with everything that I'm looking for. But after studying that particular uh, passage of scripture, the Lord began to arouse in me different questions because I, I took a look at Eve and I said, now God, what would make a woman like Eve? Now, Eve, to me, seemed to have it all, right? Um, Eve had wealth and possessions, cattle, beyond imagination. She lived in a vast, plush garden, the Garden of Eden, right? She had plenty of real estate. Um, Eve had a good man. Come on now. I, I don't know, y'all. Maybe some of y'all wives might disagree. Uh, but I would say aside from Jesus, probably Adam was the baddest thing made on earth, right? Because he was the prototype after all. So um, she had a good man. She had good wealth. She, she had good food. You know she was eating organic from those trees in the Garden of Eden, right? But most notable, Eve had a good relationship with God. She walked in the presence of God. And I begin to say, Lord, what would make a woman who had it all sin against you? And if she did that, what am I capable of? Is there any hope for me? You know, and so the Lord began to minister to me and he gave me this teaching called the C. It is an acronym, the S, the E, the A, and it stands for the senses, the ego, and the act. And it helps us to greater understand how sin really uh, pierces the heart of man and gets situated there. So if we can um, 
put up Genesis chapter 3, verse number 1. Now, before we get to that, I just want to um, give a little foundation about the senses. That would be the S, right? The senses. Um, Man has five major senses. Now, I've heard rumors that there is a sixth sense, right? But I can't verify that. But what I do know is that we have five major senses, right? We have the sight, we have uh, the hearing, we have the sense of smell, um, we have the taste, and we have the tactile or the touch. And all five of these senses act as gateways. Gateways to what, you ask? Well, remember, the primary goal is to reach the seat of free will, to reach the heart of man. So all five of these senses are access points to reach or to delve on the inside of mankind. And I'm going to give you an example of that um, in 2 Samuel. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I told you to put the wrong scripture. Y'all bear with me. This is my first time being up here this long. Um, we're going to first, before we do that, amen, I'm at home, and I know I'm at home, and I feel good about it, y'all. Um, uh, if we could turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11, I just want to give a quick illustration of what it looks like. What does that look like when uh, somebody infiltrates your senses, right? Because that's how the enemy works. He likes to infiltrate stuff. Um, 2 Samuel, okay, amen. It says, and it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. Could we go to the next one? And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Now, let's stop right there. First of all, it said, and David saw, right? So we're talking about the eye gate. We're talking about how the enemy tries to uh, pierce his heart and pierce his mind through the lust of the eye and how he's trying to enter in. Now, what David could have done at that moment, right, um, uh, he could have used the example that Jesus gave us in the wilderness, right? When Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, Jesus said, away from me, Satan, it is written. Somebody say, it is written. David could have said, it is written that thou shall not, I shall not commit adultery. And he could have just broke his gaze, right? Because I know that commandment was alive and well during David's time. And although, David, you are the king, Bathsheba was not your wife yet, right? But instead, David continued to gaze in the wrong place, right? And so what he did was he sent his men, he said, go, go check after her and see who she is. And they came back with all the information, and we know where his mind went. The Word of God tells us that if you lust in your mind, you've already created the sin, right? You've created adultery. And when David sent for her, we knew what his thoughts was, because when he got her up there, the Bible said, and he lay with her that night. He didn't call her up there and say, well, you know, Bathsheba, you know, I've been watching you and I find you intriguing. I want to get to know you better. No, he had already done what was played out in his mind. That is an example of how the enemy infiltrates your mind uh, through your senses, right? Um, and I want to say with that said, be careful. As I was reading that, I began to hear the word of the Lord saying, do not despise small beginnings. Be very, very careful what you entertain, what you 
allow to fall upon your eyes and you fall upon your ears. You know, oftentimes we tell ourselves, it's just a TV show, it's, it's just a song, or it's just this. And I, you know, my Bible tells me that the mustard seed is the least of all the seeds of the garden, but yet it yields the largest garden herb. So it's really not the size of the seed that counts, right? It's the size of the plant that it yields, the size of the kingdom that it brings forth once it's planted. Amen. And so let's go here to Eve and see how the enemy is trying to infiltrate our senses. Um, Okay, now we're ready for uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse number 1. Let's read a little bit of that. Okay, it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, Hath God said that she shall not eat of the tree of the garden? The next one, please. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Okay, now I'm going to back up a little bit. It says, now, uh, this, it says, and the serpent said unto the woman. Now, how do you receive a saying? You receive a saying in your hearing, right? So he's attempting to pierce her hearing uh, with sin. Now, just giving a little backdrop on sin. Uh, sin is metaphorically like a seed. And where I got that from, I got that from Matthew chapter 13. I want to read a little bit. If you haven't read Matthew chapter 13 lately, beloved, I would strongly suggest you do it. Um, Matthew 13 has a wealth of riches in terms of uh, metaphors. Jesus is talking um, in parables throughout this chapter, and although he goes on to explain to uh, the disciples what he means by these parables, every time you read it, it still unfolds itself to you, and you still get more and more revelation. Um, Matthew 13 starts out by talking about the condition of man's heart, right? And he refers to the condition of man's heart as ground. He talks about the stony ground. He talks about the shallow ground. And he talks about the good ground. And then he refers to the word of God as a seed. And of course, he talks about how the seed is received on different types of ground. But this is the part that I find very interesting. If we can go to Matthew 13 and chapter 24. Um, and I'll start reading it while you're turning to it. Um, Matthew chapter 13 and 24 now goes on to say, um, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man. A man, first of all, we're not talking about a place now, are we? We're talking about the kingdom of heaven being likened unto a man. So if he's talking about the kingdom of heaven being likened unto a man, we're talking about a mindset. We're talking about a heart condition. So let's go on. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man who sowed good seed in his field. Well, what happens when you sow good seed in your field? Out of the heart flow, right, the issues of life. Out of the heart flows the kingdom of heaven. And if you need a little bit more convincing than that, let's check it up again the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer says, thy kingdom 
come? How, God? How does thy kingdom come when my will be done on earth? Well, who does the will of God on earth? Man does. And how do we do the will of God on earth? When we sow good seed into our field. Y'all see that correlation there? And if you need a little bit more convincing, let's go a little bit further and see how they correlate. The next uh, expression is, give us this day our daily bread. Now, what does that have to do with this passage of scripture? Well, remember, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man which sowed seed, good seed, in his field. Now, what happens when he sows that good seed in his field? That good seed yields up a crop called wheat, right? What do you make bread with? You make bread with wheat. Now, I know that sounds a little casual, but we're talking about the same thing in two different stages. We're talking about the word of God in both places. And if you sow the word of God in good field, you will bring forth the kingdom of heaven. Would you agree? Amen. Okay. And so now we have Eve back at Eve again. We want to, and I'm just trying to explain this stuff as I go along so that when we see what Eve is going through, we'll have a better understanding. So now... Uh, the serpent has just uh, asked Eve a question, right? And she began to give him an answer. If we can turn to Genesis 3 and 3, and I'll start reading it. It says, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. And verse 3 says, But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, we recognize, based on the way the story ended and where we're at so far, that she didn't back Satan down and said, it is written. You know, verse number two could have looked very different. She could have said, it is written. God said, we shall not touch it nor eat of it, period. And that's it. But she didn't. She continued to entertain him. And so now we have come up against a realm or an entity called the ego. And that would be the second letter in the acronym of the C, the senses. Once we've pierced that, then now we've come up against the ego. Um, you can leave that scripture up there. Um, just to give a little backdrop about the ego. Now, the ego is a very self-centered, self-serving selfish entity, right? We all have an ego. I have an ego. You have an ego. And the ego is concerned with the individual or it's concerned with one's self. My ego's worried about me and your ego is worried about you. The ego has a task to do. And one of the tasks that the ego has to do is to... Uh, maintain what we call in psychology and medicine homeostasis. Uh, homeostasis means balance or equilibrium. It is the ego's job to make sure that the individual doesn't have too much anxiety, doesn't have internal conflict. It makes sure that the individual has peace, mind, body, and spirit, and that there's inner harmony with itself and the environment around it. And normally that would be a good thing, right? But unfortunately, the ego is willing to do that by any means necessary. And so the ego has a tendency to operate through filters called defense mechanisms. And before you get too excited, let me just read to you what exactly a defense mechanism is. A defense mechanism is a mental process initiated typically unconsciously to avoid conscious conflict 
or anxiety arising from an unacceptable or potentially harmful stimuli. A defense mechanism is a way of lying to oneself and it allows the individual to avoid self-examination. A good example of this would be a person who say is in a situation that's maybe a little bit traumatic for them and they're not ready to deal with it yet. And so the ego says, well, this is a problem. They're not ready to deal with it. Because see, the ego knows the truth. So the ego sees the truth of the matter. But then the ego also knows how the individual feels. So what the ego says is, how can we fix this? How can I bring harmony and peace? Because now at this point, this person is inharmonious. This, this person doesn't have balance. This person doesn't have peace. And so the ego may choose to operate through a filter called denial. And it tells the individual, I tell you what, I got this. You go ahead and do what you're doing, and we're going to act like this never happened. This is not happening to us, okay? That's what the ego does. Or let's say that the individual is so ingrained in truth that they cannot avoid it. And so they want to do something that is opposite of the truth. The ego may decide to operate in a defense mechanism called justification or rationalization, whereby they know the truth, but they justify what they want to do that is opposite of the truth. That's how the ego operates, right? And so now we have here a situation where the seed has gone past the hearing and the seed is up against the ego. Now the enemy recognizes the, push, the position that he has put Eve in at this uh, current state. Imagine if you were in her situation. Um, imagine, say, you were a Christian, right? That should be easy to imagine. Um, imagine you were a Christian and you're very at peace with being a Christian. You're happy that you're a Christian. It defines who you are, mind, body, and spirit. You are very sound with your decision, with the truth that you stand upon. And someone comes along and submits new information that shakes your foundation, that causes you to doubt the truth that you've known all this time. Something so profound, something so considerable that you don't really know what to do, right? Well, this is what happened to Eve when the serpent came along. Are we still on chapter 3 or verse 3? Okay. Um, all right, good. And so it says, uh, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Now right there, he planted doubt in her head, right? There it is. There is the opposing uh, understanding, the opposing ideology. Both of these ideologies cannot live in Eve's heart at the same time because one is totally against the other. Just the, the spirit of doubt alone by its own nature causes disharmony, disunity, dysfunction, double-mindedness, right? And so Eve is in a very precarious situation right now. And what she has to do, the ego has to sit on the throne of free will, reason this thing out, and make an executive decision. What am I going to accept? What am I going to do? Because right now, he's just giving me information that is not working with what I've already known. And so now, what happens is, can we go to the next scripture? I have a question. Um, 
What, what, if you wanted to uh, plant a seed and water a seed um, and make it grow, how, well, you know, I guess I'll give y'all the answer, sorry. Uh, but if you plant a seed and you wanna bring forth a crop or if you plant a seed and you would like to bring forth a kingdom, how would you do that? You would water the seed, right? You would nurture the ground. And that's what the enemy starts to do here. And he begins to water that seed. He's not trying to bring forth the kingdom of heaven. We realize what you need to do in order to bring forth the kingdom of heaven. You sow good seed in your field, right? But in order to bring forth another kingdom, the kingdom, say, of hell on earth, you would have to use a different type of nurturing. And so what the enemy goes on to do is to use the three categories. These three categories, I call them the three dark kings. If you can think of any sin in your mind right now, that sin will definitely fall under one of these three categories. Um, Second John chapter, or First John chapter 2 and verse 15 talks about these three categories, and I'm just going to read it really quickly for you. These three categories are called the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And that's how he begins to water this seed so he can bring forth a crop, um, so he can bring forth the kingdom. Um, it says in uh, 1 John, love not the world, neither the things in it. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And 16 says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of the life, it is not the father, but it is of the world. And so this is what the enemy began to pull out on Eve when he realized that she was in the valley of decision. And so, okay, so you got it up there. Now, if we can go back to Genesis and see how the enemy is attempting to sow this seed, it says... So he's just told her, you shall not surely die. And then five says, for God doth know that the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open and you shall be uh, as gods knowing good and evil. Now, I don't know if y'all recognize that, but first of all, that alone is the pride of life, right? That's what got the enemy. That's what got the uh, uh, serpent kicked out of heaven when he saw God and he wanted to be equal with God, right? Be like God. And so he got kicked out as a result of it. So right there, there's the pride of life. And if you haven't seen the subtleties from verse verses 1 to 5. Let's look at verse number 6 because it summarizes all of that for us. It says, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes. Now let's stop right there. We're dealing with the lust of the eyes, right? It says that she saw and that it was pleasant to the eyes. Now remember, in the beginning, she said the serpent beguiled me. To beguile someone is to distract them, to create a diversion. So now we have the woman looking at the tree, looking at the fruit on the tree, right? And she begins to operate in the lust of the eye. And then it says, when she saw that it was good for food. Now, I thought maybe it was just me, but I wish somebody could tell me how you can see something is good for food. I mean, think about it. For all you know, it could be poisonous. And the last time I checked, God told her that if she ate of it, she would surely die. So I'm thinking it was toxic at best. But something, what was it that something that told her that it was good for food? Remember, we talked about the ego. So now we have Eve gazing at the fruit. 
and she's beginning to think about some of the things that the serpent is telling her. And now the eagle within her is going crazy at this point because he's thinking to himself, I know the truth. The truth is she'll die if she eats that. But then also the ego is receiving signals from Eve. He knows what she wants. So he's trying to figure out how am I going to resolve this? And so the ego says, I got it. First and foremost, I'm going to repress the truth. I'm going to forget about the moment that I heard that God said, I'm not supposed to touch this tree. So I'm going to repress it first and foremost. And secondly, I'm going to justify what I'm feeling right now, justify how I'm feeling. Despite the fact that God said, don't touch it, she wants that fruit. So let me think. It's good for food. That's a good idea, right? And so the ego tells Eve, I know it's good for food. And so Eve looks at it and she says, hmm, this thing is pretty good for food, right? At this point, she's probably getting hunger pains. And that would be the lust of the flesh. It's good for food. It's really not good for food. But she's operating in her flesh. And I want to say this. Operating in the lust of the flesh is not just about the passions between a man and a woman. Operating in lust of the flesh could be a lack of self-control. Operating in the flesh could be uh, overindulgence. Anything dealing with your flesh is operating in the lust of the flesh. And so now it says she saw the tree and that it was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eye. And here's that pride of life. And a tree to be desired to make one wise. In other words, like uh, the serpent had told her, it's a tree that once you eat it, you're going to have the knowledge of good and evil and you're going to be like God, right? And it says that after she saw all this, she took of the fruit thereof and she did eat. And she gave it to her husband also. And that was how Eve began to uh, become infiltrated with that seed of sin. And so what I want to give right now, um, in my closing, I want to give a, a little testimony of my own. Because what the Lord showed me is that when the seed enters in, the kingdom comes, no matter what kingdom it is. The kingdom comes through will being done. And we even see that where it was just a serpent in Genesis. But by the time he got to Revelation, he was a full-blown dragon. How did he get that way? Because man doing his will on earth. Every time we do the will of the enemy, we bring forth a kingdom. It's not so simple as uh, I'm grown and I'm doing what I do and it's between me and God. But actually, you do his will, you bring forth his kingdom. And if you don't cast down those vain imaginations, when they exalt themselves above the knowledge of God, then the seed continues to mature. The seed continues to grow. And I just want to give my own personal example of that. Um, my grandmother, I love her so much. Um, my grandmother's 88 years old right now. And um, I remember going to go visit her. And unfortunately, because of her risk, her fall risk, and all these different um, health risks that she had, um, her children had to put her in a nursing home. And as she's in this nursing home, she doesn't want to eat her food. She doesn't want to take her medicine. And um, they diagnosed my grandmother with schizophrenia at the age of 88. And I said, Lord, 
how does one get a diagnosis like schizophrenia at 88? After you've lived your whole life, you haven't really had any issues, hadn't really had those problems. And then now at the latter stages, your latter reign, now you get a serious diagnosis like schizophrenia. And the Lord began to rewind. He began to take me back to when my grandmother was, say, in her early 50s. And I would go and I would visit her. And as soon as we stepped through the door, you couldn't even get through the threshold, good, God bless her. And she would say, come here, come here, come here. Take a look, take a look. You see what they're doing? This one's prostituting. This one right here is selling drugs. This one's doing this. This one's doing that. And then she would hand you a set of binoculars. She was very serious about it. Um, she was very involved in it, really in knee deep. And, and so you didn't want to say no to Nana. Okay? So you would take the binoculars and you would look. But the problem I had is that you couldn't even get through most of the visit, probably 95% of the visit, she was consumed with the conversation of what the neighbors are doing, okay? And then now fast forward to her being 88 years old, in a nursing home, she won't eat her food, she won't take her medicine. And when you ask her, Grandma, well, why won't you take your medicine? Why won't you eat your food? And she would say, I don't trust them. Oh, why don't you trust them, Grandma? Because they're trying to kill me. Hmm. Grandma, these are very good people. Why are they trying to kill you? She says, because I know too much. And the enemy began to show, or the enemy, I'm sorry, the Lord began to show me the correlation between the two. She entertained for so long backbiting and slander. I would even dare say it was a spirit of murder because she would just murder the people's reputation. She didn't even know if some of the things that she said was true. But she was so engulfed and so involved in what she was doing, and it may have been physically pleasurable to her at the time. But then what the enemy tries to do is Later on, the enemy, when you're older, maybe when you're more weaker, the enemy tries to come back and claim territory that legally he feels like he has the right to. So as soon as she's 88, she's weak, she's up in age, now he comes, and like I said in the beginning, he's never content with a fraction. He's coming now because he wants to consume the entire kit and caboodle. He wants to take the sum total. Whatever part that you may allow yourself to agree with, now he's going to sneak in from the side door, from the back door, and he's going to try to take everything that you own. But how many people know that the devil is a liar? Because she has praying family. Amen? And so, you know, rapidly, the, you know, my grandmother's getting better and better. I'm hearing good reports, and we continue to keep her lifted up, and I thank you if you keep her lifted up. But, we, we, you know, we have to go back, and it's never too late. We have to go back, and we have to take um, an assessment of really what we are allowing ourselves to be involved with, because the whole time that I studied to uh, uh, bring this message, what I kept hearing is that it's a small seed in the beginning. It's a very small seed. It's a very small small care. It's a very small concern. But meanwhile, like uh, 
Matthew chapter 13 said, um, the, the, the kingdom of heaven is like the man who planted this seed, the good seed in his field. But the next part said, but while men slept and uh, the, the enemy came in and he sowed the tares. And what I found interesting after that is while men slept, he sowed the tares. But even when they woke up, they didn't notice the tears right away. They didn't notice the tears until it was harvest time, until it was time to bear fruit. And then they saw that there was tear in among the wheat. And the Lord just ministered to me that that's oftentimes what we do. We diminish, we reduce, and we allow ourselves to get involved with things. Meanwhile, while we're asleep, while we're unaware, the enemy is creeping in and he's sowing things into our spirit, sowing things into our hearts, sowing things into our minds to the degree where one day we look up and we're driving a car and something flows out of our mouth or flows out of our heart so profound. You know what I mean? And we surprise ourselves and we say, where did that come from? God, that's not even me. That thought's not me. Ah, but while you were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed a tear, right? And so, um, Again, the Lord ministered to me about that, and I just wanted to encourage everyone tonight. That's really the crux of my goal. Um, this being my first time, of course, this did not quite come out the way I rehearsed it. Um, but um, the crux of the goal that I want to drive home tonight is be careful what you allow to enter into your heart, in, into your mind, into your eyes, into your ears. Watch what you entertain because the enemy is on assignment. And I'll say this as a disclaimer, I do agree with my pastor and spiritual father when he says that we are to gaze at God but glance at the enemy. We don't want to give him too much attention, right? We gaze at God but we glance at the enemy. But I also know that Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that as we glance at the enemy, that we should put on our full armor, right? And it goes on to explain to us all the things that we need to do as we have that full armor on. And I asked the Lord, why would you tell us that? Why would you explain all those things? And he said, because I have to raise your level of awareness. I have to raise the level of awareness of what the enemy is after.